Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke 24, and this morning we're looking at the first 12 verses of this chapter. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. It is the inerrant Word of God. It is the powerful Word of God. It will change your heart and your life. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. A couple of weeks ago in my sermon, I mentioned how the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank out west had caused a crisis in our faith regarding our banking system in this country and really beyond to the nations of the world. Coming on the heels of a pandemic, we see how it has shaken our sense of security in this world. What can we be sure about? Where have we placed our trust that is a valid trust. Is our money truly safe? Last week, Andre Peterson wrote a column for World Magazine on this subject. And she started with a joke from a Woody Allen movie. It goes like this. This guy goes to a psychiatrist and says, Doc, my brother's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. And so the psychiatrist says to him, well, why don't you turn him in? And he says, well, I would, but I need the eggs. Well, Andre goes on to write, that's how I felt walking out of the bank today. My little transaction in there was totally absurd because everybody knows that it's an illusion. Nevertheless, I fully intend to keep going and participating in this charade because, well, I need the eggs. Here's the bargain I have with the bank. They pretend to give me money that is backed by hard assets, and I pretend that they really have assets. That is to say, they pretend to give me money that they really don't have, and I pretend to believe that they really have it. Then I drive to the food store, and they accept what's in my hand as a fair exchange for their bread and milk and eggs. It works, for now, because we're all in the game. That article is just another good reminder to me that every day we live by trust. 
trust in things that we can't prove scientifically, that we can't handle with our hands, that we can't see with our eyes. We have to live by trust. You can't live without living by trust. It's a good reminder to me that the things that we trust in in this world are fragile and temporary at best and illusionary at worst. Personally, I try not to study and look deeply into our economy because when I do, I come away feeling like it's a big house of cards that any little gust of wind could blow down. Everybody lives by faith. I don't care what your philosophy is. I don't care what your religion is. You live by faith. And so the most important question that all of us have to ask ourselves is what is our faith in? What have we based our faith upon? We are here, I assume. If you're here this morning, I hope it's because your faith is in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Your meaning and purpose in life is because of your faith in a risen Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because your faith rises or falls on the Bible's claim that Jesus is truly alive, bodily alive, risen from the dead. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Everything about your faith rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that the reason you're here on Easter morning is because you want to say along with the disciples when they said to Jesus, increase our faith. Lord, we want more faith. We want a stronger faith. We want a deeper faith because we have to live by that faith. Matter of fact, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says that each believer is not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's how God looks at you. When you walk out of this building, you walk out into the marketplace, you walk out into the workplace, you walk out to the schools, the world is going to judge you by those fragile, temporary, superficial characteristics. What you look like, how tall you are, the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the job you have, the person you marry. That's how you get measured by the world. But the Bible tells us that God measures you by the amount of faith that you have. That's what's important. And if your faith is the most important thing about you, then you better be sure about what your faith is based upon. How do we grow in faith? And that's what we see actually in this account that Luke gives us of the resurrection of Christ in chapter 24. We've been working our way through the book of Luke. We now come to the final chapter. And all through Luke, but especially in these last couple of chapters where he's been talking about the suffering, the, the trials, the arrest, the trials, and the suffering, and the crucifixion of Christ, we've seen that, that Luke doesn't focus on the kind of things that we would focus on. You know, what was it like to be crucified? You know, tell us some details, Luke. No, he, he doesn't at all. 
His focus is on the response of the eyewitnesses of these events. Because he's teaching us about what faith in Christ looks like. He focuses on how those people who were literal eyewitnesses of the events responded. He was, an he was the very first church historian. He did careful research, interviewed many eyewitnesses. He says that back in chapter 1. And so what he's given us is the account of these eyewitnesses. He tells us what the crucifixion, the suffering and crucifixion looked like from the women in the crowd as they watched him carry his cross to Calvary. He shares the perspective of the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, the thieves even on the crosses that were crucified next to him. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin who took the body of Christ and buried it in his own expensive tomb. But when he gets here to the resurrection, it's interesting that Luke focuses upon the women of Galilee. Now, he's told us about the women of Galilee back in the end of chapter 23. These women had been at the cross. They had stood at the foot of the cross, watched Jesus being crucified. These women of Galilee had been disciples of Christ since way back in his earthly ministry. They, when he was basing his ministry in Galilee and preaching and doing miracles, they began to follow him. Matter of fact, back in chapter 8, Luke tells us that these women are the ones who provided. They not only followed Christ, but out of their means, which shows that they had some money, out of their means, they provided for Jesus and his disciples as he carried out his ministry throughout the region. Now, these women, probably about five, maybe more, had been at the cross during the crucifixion. They had followed, we saw at the end of last week, they followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, when they took the body and put it in the tomb, they followed them to the tomb so that they could know where they would be able to go later to be able to finish the pro pro appropriate Jewish preparations of a, of, a, of a body. And so, after they saw where he was buried, they went back to Jerusalem to prepare their spices for the preparation of the body and to rest on the Sabbath day. And then at the crack of dawn, on the first day of the week, the day we call Sunday, they left for the tomb to prepare the body. What's striking to me about these women, as Luke describes them, is the intense devotion they had to Christ. They were there throughout his life and ministry. They were standing by him at the cross when almost all the other disciples had fled. And now, even after his death, they're doing everything they can do to give him honor. In Luke 10, Luke tell, told us that Mary Magdalene, he later lists her as one of the women, Mary Magdalene was one who had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. She owed her sanity. She owed her life to Christ. She loved him deeply. Mark's account of this story actually tells us that as they were going to the tomb, they wondered, what are we going to do with that big rock that's up against the door? They knew they couldn't move it. It was huge. They don't mention it in Mark, so we don't know if they even knew about the Roman seal on the tomb and the Roman soldiers that were stationed there. They had no idea how they were going to get access to the body, but they loved Jesus so much. They were so devoted to him that they were going to go to the tomb hoping that there would be some way 
to finish that work. What that says to us is that love and devotion often acts irrationally. They had a deep devotion to Christ. A real faith, but a faith that was really struggling because they put their faith in Jesus. They'd given their life to Jesus, but he was dead. What were they going to do with that? So let's look at how their faith grows through this experience. And in that, we will see how our faith grows every day of our lives. First of all, we see that they had faith without understanding. They had a faith that lacked revelation. A faith that lacked the truth that was needed to strengthen that faith. In verses 2 and 3, it says, They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And Luke says they were perplexed. That word means utterly at a loss, dumbfounded. They didn't know how to process. They had no frame of reference for processing an empty tomb. They would have been overjoyed maybe to see the stone rolled away, but an empty tomb they didn't know how to process. Matter of fact, Mary Magdalene, she jumped to a conclusion. It says in John's gospel that she didn't actually go into the tomb with the other women. When she saw that the stone rolled away and it appeared it was empty, she ran back to the disciples to tell them. And what she said to them was, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So she's assuming that the body had been stolen. And so again, here's this woman who loved and was so devoted to Christ trying to process how he could suffer like he suffered under the great shame of the crucifixion, how he could die the way he died, dealing with death, and now dealing with the, 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 his body being stolen, desecrated. They were already deeply perplexed by his crucifixion. Now there was no body. And I'm sure that they knew the Psalms, they probably even sang or quoted or prayed the Psalms in a moment like that. Why, O oh Lord? Why have you deserted Christ? Why have you allowed this to happen? We don't understand. But again, they loved Jesus. They were devoted to him even in their ignorance, even in their lack of understanding. Because they had seen his perfectly righteous life a man who never sinned in thought word and deed they had witnessed that for maybe a couple of years firsthand they had heard him teach with profound and unique divine wisdom and they had experienced his perfect love and grace and compassion so this was not a blind devotion it was based in their experience of who Christ was but they couldn't process the incredibly rapid, tragic events that they just endured. A lot of you know that my wife and I were in Pittsburgh yesterday at Children's Hospital because our grandson, Judah, was in emergency surgery. For those of you who don't know the background, Judah was born, actually he was not alive, not breathing when he was born, and he didn't breathe for the first seven minutes of his life. And so the result of that was profound brain damage and uh, he's a severely disabled uh, young man. And his life up to this point for years now has been one health crisis after another. And he went into the hospital on Wednesday because he'd not been eating well. He never really has eaten well, and so they were going to put a tube into his stomach, and everything went well for the first day or so, and then he started to go downhill. And uh, by yesterday, it was scary. 
Um, he was not in good shape at all. And so the doctor came in and said, we're very concerned. We're getting him into the OR right away. And they did surgery. And as I watched, not only experienced my own grief over that, but watched my daughter, who's borne the, 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 the heavy lifting on caring for him all these years, watching her go through this, I was tempted to say, like these women, why, oh Lord? Why do you seem to pile on so much with some people? Why? But underlining that legitimate question was a faith that God is in sovereign, God is in control, and he's working his good purposes even if I can't understand them. That's the same level of faith that these women had. They could not understand what had happened at the cross or at the tomb. But underlying it was a faith and a devotion that the Lord was in the process of building and strengthening to greater faith. They had a real faith in Jesus, but they lacked understanding. In some ways, they were kind of like Apollos. Remember Luke, this church historian, later in the book of Acts, talks about a man named Apollos. And this is how Luke describes him in Acts chapter 18. He said, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He had a faith in what he knew, what revelation he had received, but he was lacking important revelation about who Jesus is and what he had come to do. His faith was real, but it needed truth revealed from God through his word so that he might fully put his trust in Christ. He lacked revelation, he lacked understanding, but he was drawn to Christ. Maybe that's where you are today. I'm assuming that in some churches at least, that that's where people, they come on Easter Sunday because they're, they know they're missing something. And somehow they feel like the answer is in Christ, somehow. They're drawn to Christ. They may even be coming to love Christ. They're so blown away by his profound divine wisdom. And they've begun to experience his compassion. There's a real nugget of faith there. Maybe some of you are in that place today. So how is your faith going to grow from that place of lacking understanding and revelation to being a strong faith? Well, you need revelation. You need to go to the Word of God. The fire of love and trust and devotion needs the fuel of divine revelation in order to confirm and strengthen faith. And so that's the second step we see here with these women. The Lord sends two messengers with this revelation. And we see their faith strengthened. The two men that appear, it says that they were in dazzling apparel. That's how we know they were angels, among other evidences. It says that their apparel was literally shining like lightning. That's what the words mean. What they were wearing was shining like lightning. Same word that was used to describe Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain. And these women say, this, these angels say to the women, he is not here, but has risen. He is not here, but he has risen. Simple message. What's interesting to me is that they don't immediately give some visible sign to prove that what they said is true. Now, of course, seeing angels put them on their knees, that's one sign. But 
You would think, if I were an angel at that point, I'd want to go introduce them to the risen Jesus right away. Look, see, with your own eyes, here he is, he's alive. But that's not what they do. You know, what's interesting is that the other Gospels tell us that when Jesus was raised from the dead, in the moment that he was raised from the dead, there was a great earthquake. And an angel came down and rolled the stone away. That's how the stone got removed. But the women didn't get to see that. They came after the fact. Why didn't God give them some big visible sign to strengthen their faith? No. You notice what these angels did? They, painted, they pointed the women to the words of Jesus. They said to them, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. You see, Luke has recorded earlier that on three separate occasions, using almost those exact words, Jesus said just that. Now to us, looking back, retrospectively, how could they have not understood what had happened? But their faith was not there yet. They needed the revelation confirmed by the testimony of these angels. But it's the word of Christ that they are to look to. Remember what he said. Remember what he taught you. It says back in Luke 18, after the third time that Jesus prophesied these words, it said they understood none of these things, speaking of the women and the disciples. The women, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. You see, these angels didn't point to signs or wonders or evidence to confirm and strengthen their faith. They taught them how faith grows. They pointed them to the words of Christ and shown how they had proven to be true. You see, that's the purpose of Scripture. God gave us this book. This book foretells, foretells, and records and interprets the work of God in saving us from our sins. And these women needed to look to the word of God in order for their faith to grow. Paul's summary of the gospel that Pastor Ben read earlier says this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of the first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Do you hear that repeated phrase? In accordance with the scriptures. Just as he said it happened. That's how your faith is going to grow. Not in signs and wonders, not in visible evidences, not in visions of the risen Christ. Your faith is going to grow because you deepen your trust in the words that he said. Scripture is that fuel for the fires of trust and devotion that grows your faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes to you through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's how your faith is going to grow. You can't say it, stay it any more simply than that. In verse 8, it says, and they remembered his words. And I think what Luke is describing there is something that anybody who's been born again, who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that you've experienced at some point in your life, the lights turn on. You know, the truth, the revelation of the Word of God has been around you for maybe years. But in a moment, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. And you remember what he said. And you begin to understand. 
and the pieces start to fit together. The prophecies of the Old Testament start to come together to show you a picture of Christ and his saving work long before it ever happened. That's what happened for these women. You're going to see it again in next week's passage, talking about two of Christ's disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus, and suddenly someone came alongside them, someone they didn't recognize. Turns out it was the risen Lord Jesus. But what's beautiful about that story is how Jesus brought them to a greater faith. Look at verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Christ pointed them to what's already been said, what's already been revealed, to show that everything that happened in the life, everything he taught and everything he did was all for their salvation. He helped them put the pieces together. And then listen to the work of the Holy Spirit, because it testifies to the work of the Holy Spirit down in uh, verse 32. These men, after Jesus departs from them, these, these disciples said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures? There's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit working in the heart of a sinner like you and me to open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts so that we hear and understand. Did you have that moment in your life? Now, for many of you, I hope, you were so young when that moment happened that maybe you don't even remember it. But many of us know that there was that moment where the Holy Spirit opened our eyes. The truth was there. It was all around us. We were swimming in the truth. But all of a sudden, we understood. But notice that the Holy Spirit does this supernatural work, this miracle in your heart and soul. He does it by the Word of God. He applies the word of God to you, to your heart, to your life. That's his ministry. There are many strong, rational arguments and evidences that can be given for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can read books about that. That's not really my focus today. But our faith isn't based upon signs and wonders or miracles or evidences. Our faith is based upon the word of God. And growing in faith means trusting in the word of God. Do you remember when Jesus told the story about the rich man who went to hell and Lazarus, the beggar at his gate, who went to heaven? Do you remember when the rich man said, uh, you know, since he realized, when he realized he was stuck there for eternity, he said, could you please send somebody back from the dead to tell my, warn my brothers so they don't end up here with me? Do you remember what he was told? If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And history continues to prove that over and over in every generation. If you rely on visible evidences, your faith will fail. But if it's a real faith, a spirit-given faith, a spirit-nurtured faith, it'll grow as you seed it with the word of God. The word of God is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. If I tell you something it's true, hopefully it's because you've come to trust that what I tell you, I tend to tell you what's true. Well, I'm just a sinner. We're talking about God. If he tells you something is true, 
you can base your life on it. The word of God is how your faith is going to grow. It is a means of grace. God imparts strength to your faith through the hearing and reading of the word of God. There's a very popular movement out there I hear among young adults called deconstruction. When it's applied to the Christian faith, what that means is that these young adults that have been taught the, the teachings of Christianity their whole life, they get to a point and say, well, I'm just going to pick and choose. I'm going to, what I like about the Christian truth, I'm going to hold on to, but what I don't like, I'm going to get rid of, and they call it deconstruction. What troubled me was a couple months ago, I read one guy from that movement who said, hey, all we're doing is the same thing that the reformers did back in the 1500s. We're just taking what we've been, they just took what they'd been taught by the Catholic Church and they decided what they liked and what they didn't like. That what they liked they kept and what they didn't like they got rid of. I said, boy, you don't know anything about history. That is not what the reformers did at all. What the reformers did is they compared what was being taught in the churches with what the word of God teaches. And they went back to what God's word said was true. That's what Reformation is, and the church should always be reforming by that definition. So the key to spiritual growth is to remember his words and trust his words. And that leads to the fruit of a growing faith. And I just want you to see that in the text. In verse 9, it says, And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. You see, if you have this deep devotion and love for Christ and it's being fed by the word of God, and it's getting stronger and brighter, then you begin to really treasure Christ, and the things that you treasure in life are the things you boast about. Now, I don't mean boast in the sense of prideful bragging. What I mean is boasting in the sense that the Bible talks about, boasting that is in faith. We boast about our spouses. We boast about our children. We boast about our grandchildren. We boast about our gardens, we boast about our summer vacations, we boast about our favorite teams, and Paul says in First and Second Corinthians, we are to ultimately always be boasting in the Lord. As he says in Galatians chapter 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's what these women did as their faith was confirmed and is, is, is raging like a fire in their souls. They want to take it and tell the good news to someone who desperately needs to hear it. But we immediately see why this can be such a discouraging thing in the light of our enthusiasm and faith. It's because it says in verse 11, when they came to the disciples, and we're talking about the 11 apostles among other disciples, it says, these words seemed to them to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The word idle tale there, um, the words idle tale, it actually comes from the, the, the Greek word that means empty words, foolishness, crazy talk. And that was the first reaction of the followers of Jesus, let alone the world. The testimony of women was not respected in that culture, and it's always fascinating to me that God chose women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection because God takes what the world considers to be weak and shows his strength. And that's what he did with these women. He brought the revelation, the truth that, they, that these disciples, the apostles needed for their faith to grow, and yet their reaction in the flesh was, this is crazy talk. You know, that's one of the evidences, again, I said I want to talk about evidence, but it is one of the interesting evidences that the resurrection story in the scriptures is true, because the apostles weren't looking for a resurrection. 
They had no hope. They, they had, that wasn't even, hadn't even crossed their mind that there might be a resurrection. And even when they were told, they were obviously rejected it out of hand, first of all, and then they were slow to believe it. And even after Jesus appeared to them multiple times over the course of 40 days, it says at the end of that that they still, some of them, had doubts. But God uses what is weak to show his strength. And all of these 11 apostles, all of them, suffered and ultimately died for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as God continued to grow their faith step by step throughout the course of their lives. Just a reminder to us at the end that Paul has warned us that our message is foolishness to the world. But I also want to remind you that it is the power of God to salvation. And there is no other power to salvation except the gospel of Jesus Christ. This account ends with Peter running to the tomb to see for himself. And he finds the tomb empty, just like the women did. And then it says he went home marveling. And I like that word, just in wonder. Again, kind of dumbfounded, but his faith is beginning to grow. And we get to see that faith grow over the course of the book of Acts, as God used him greatly to build his kingdom. Hebrews chapter 11 gives a very familiar definition of faith, but I want you to notice it doesn't say anything about evidences, doesn't say anything about visions, doesn't say anything about hard scientific data, doesn't say anything about something we can see or touch or taste or feel. This is what faith is according to Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In other words, what we've seen in today's text is faith is remembering the words of Jesus Christ and trusting them, basing your life upon them. You'll never regret it. Feelings, signs, wonders, visions, experiences, emotions, these are good things, but our trust and our security is not in them. Jesus said, listen carefully, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I think every Easter Sunday morning for the rest of my life, I'm going to be reminded of a young man who came to Oakwood for his first church service two years ago on Easter Sunday. And he came and he said, you know, I read a book about Jesus and I was so fascinated by Jesus and I just wanted to come to church to learn more about him. And I said, that's great. Let's, let's get together and have lunch. And so we started meeting regularly and, and as we started to meet and talk about what discipleship looked, for him, looked like for him, he said, oh, I've made a commitment. I'm going to read this Bible from page one to the last page. I'm going to start at the beginning and I'm going to keep reading until I get finished with it. I said, are you sure you want to do that? I said, normally when somebody's a new believer or somebody's just coming to faith, I don't start with Genesis 1. I said, usually I'll take them to the Gospel of John or somewhere in the New Testament to help them kind of get a better sense of the big picture. And then you can go back and read some of those more difficult to interpret passages in the Old Testament. He said, nope, I'm doing it. I'm reading the Bible from beginning to end. I want to know the Word of God. I said, okay. Well, as I continued to meet with him, he kept reading kept growing in his faith. Then he moved away, and I uh, just, had, just, just uh, had a Zoom with him just last week. First thing he told me when he got on a Zoom was, uh, 
I'm up to Job. I just finished Job. I said, more power to you, man. That's awesome. And it was just a good reminder to me. It's the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful in and of itself. It doesn't need me there to sit beside him while he's reading those difficult passages to explain them to him. The Word of God saved me. I had nobody explain the gospel to me when I was a teenager. And I started reading the Word of God, and it saved me. And that's why I preach the Word of God today, because I know the Word of God by itself has power. My only job is to help make it clear to you so that it has this, the Holy Spirit can apply it to your life. Trust it. Trust the words of Christ. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as recorded in the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as it was prophesied and foreshadowed in the Old Testament and as it is interpreted in the New Testament. It's all about him. And as you gain in your understanding of the word of God, you, your faith deepens and strengthens and it'll help you face anything you have to face in life until he takes you to himself or he comes again. Because we know that he has risen from the dead, we know that the debt of our sins is paid at the cross. We know that he is alive and he is on the throne and he is interceding and protecting and providing for us. And we know that we will rise with him when he comes again, perfected in body and soul. Trust his word. Let's pray. Father, we are here to celebrate the resurrection. And Lord, the world is going to scoff at the idea because it sees it as foolish, it sees it as empty words, it sees it as idle talk. But Lord, we know that it is true, that it is an historical event, and that it has proven that our sins are atoned for, and we are reconciled to you because of what Christ did for us. Father, may our faith grow in this Easter season, Lord, as we dive into your word daily, seeking to know you better. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of faith and your Holy Spirit to help us to understand what you have revealed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.